You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. You ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? (laughs) Biggest truth you're going to hear all week. You're a mess. You're an absolute wreck. I want to get a holy amen from those of you who know it, and the rest of you are going to learn it this week. You're a mess. I'm a mess. All God's people are a mess. We're all struggling against our fallen human nature. And that's our story, because God, in his infinite wisdom and love, has chosen to give us free will. Let's all say, thank God for free will. (laughs) Back before we ever got hold of it, an angel in pursuit of the power of God rebelled against the holy order of things. It was not enough for him to worship God. He wanted to be like God, so he began to compete for that power, and he became God's adversary. God rejected him, and ever since, he has been fighting against God for the control of the human race. There is somebody out there who does not like you, who is after your heart. So, we're caught up in the spiritual battle for control of our souls. That's why it always feels like good is an effort, and why we always feel that low-level, persistent press to do the self-serving thing, because our battle, Paul says this in Ephesians, is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of the dark world. So caught up in this battle, our lives are out of control, literally, and we know it instinctively even if we don't admit it. We're in this constant struggle for control. It's why people run for presidents, and it's why kids do drugs, and it's why adults have affairs, and it's why people jump from cliffs or from job to job or religion to to religion or addiction to addiction. It is our fallen attempt to get back what we've lost, to find meaning, to fix what feels broken. And the day we discover we cannot fix it on our own, that we cannot get there from here, the day we surrender to that truth, that our lives are out of control, that we're a mess and we can't fix it, that's the day life begins. And that's the big message of Leviticus. And it's the story of people in desperate search of meaning and redemption who discover that wholeness and holiness is not something they can conquer, not as fallen people, not outside the rule and reign of God. So the book of Leviticus is laying out a prescription for the good life in order to make his chosen people hungry for it and in anticipation of a coming redeemer whose life makes our lives worthy. And that's where I want to take you this week. You who are here on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock under duress on the third week of your semester. I want to make you fall in love with Leviticus. Because Leviticus teaches us Uh, The principles of recovery teaches us about life, real life, whole and holy. Now, I'm 99%, uh, let me 
Yep. I am 99% sure that we are the only college campus in the entire country talking about Leviticus in chapel on Monday morning. <laughs> and I'm feeling really good about that. Are you feeling good about it? I feel good about it. Because I'm with the rule breakers in this room. I'm with the renegades, with people who ain't afraid of the holiness code, with some of whom could probably take a few steps toward recovery, toward wholeness and holiness. So will you pray with me? Jesus, I am extremely aware in this moment that given all the factors that have us here in this room this morning and the fact that I am preaching from Leviticus, which, Jesus, you and I have to admit, is not the biggest, most exciting book in the Bible. That if a work is going to be done, it will be you, not me. It will be you, not us. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you pour out your Holy Spirit right now. Pour out your Holy Spirit over this room, Jesus, and give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you in the Word, and a heart to receive everything you have for us today. Because, Lord, I want to, like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, I want to show those who are ready in this room how to get whole. Those who are broken and hungry and searching how to find life. That's what I want. So Jesus, will you show up and do what only you can do? And if you will, we'll be so grateful. We do love you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. At home, what I say every Sunday is that the best way to engage the Word of God with is, a is with a Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. So I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible with you, pull it out, and something to write with and something to write on, because I'll tell you every once in a while, you ought to write this down, okay? So this love affair that I've had with Leviticus has been a couple of years now. I want to tell you about it. When I began my reading plan a couple of years ago, I slogged through the first five books of the Bible the way people always do, waiting to get past that. And then for some reason, which I won't explain, the Lord had me go back and start over again, maybe because I had a bad attitude. So I just finished Leviticus. It meant I had to read it again. And right then, right at that very time, my sister, who's never been, you know, like deeply immersed, in the, in, in the Christian world, she decided to read the Bible for the first time, and I was really excited. I had the joy of reading vicariously through a first-time Bible reader, and so we communicated a lot, especially when she got to Leviticus, because, you know, it can suck the fun out of life. I didn't want her to lose heart, so we communicated a lot. And as it turns out, my sister, my sister actually liked Leviticus. She said, she wrote this, she said that reading it, she finally got Jesus, and she wrote this to me. She said, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty much in Leviticus, I thought God said, okay, look, you've sacrificed all manner of animals for me. The temple is a bloody mess, but so are your lives, despite my sending my word through the prophets. So let me make this abundantly clear by sending myself to you in human form to show you how to live through your folly. He will end up crucified and serve as the ultimate sacrifice for all your sin. And that will be the final word on sacrifice and forgiveness and how to live a godly life. And I read that and I said, she nailed it. Why didn't 
I see that. And then she wrote this. And in reading Leviticus, we get a sense of, good grief, how much blood has to be shed in order to get right with God? Leviticus really is a teaching moment. Not pleasant to immerse oneself in, but definitely instructive. This is my sister talking. Can you imagine sacrificing some poor animal every time you wanted to gain favor and every time you did something wrong? And that's how Leviticus begins. It begins on that theme, that those sacrifices were relentless. I want you to remember that. A constant invitation into communion, but also a constant reminder of our hunger to get it right, to get back to the other side of Genesis 3, and ultimately of our powerlessness to make it happen on our own strength. So here's how Leviticus begins. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. The offering is a burnt offering from the herd. You're to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You're to slaughter the young bull from before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You're to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat. You're welcome. On the wood that is burning on the altar, you're to wash the internal organs. Again, you're welcome on a Monday morning. Um, you're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So right off the bat, we get a taste of first covenant living, it was this constant compensation for sins, for meaning. The first section of Leviticus, first seven chapters, are laws concerning the sacrifice. The word sacrifice in Latin literally means to make something holy. So this is God speaking from a place of worship, calling his people to both holy, uh, wholeness and holiness. The Burnt offering is listed first among five offerings and sacrifices described in the first section of Leviticus because, listen, it's a whole animal. It's a call to full surrender. And each of the next few chapters explains the other kinds of offerings, and each kind carries the same message. It's not the offering, it's the God you serve. So if you've got your Bible open and you write in it, you should write that right there at the top of the first page of Leviticus. It's sort of a heading over everything. It's not the offering, it's the God you serve. We find wholeness and holiness not by going through the motions, but by virtue of our proximity to God. 
So the grain offering is about character, the finest flower representing holiness. The fellowship offering about restoring communion with God. The sin and guilt offerings about coming clean. All these offerings made over and over and over. The constant recalibration of the soul. Constant reorientation toward God. All designed to put us in direct relationship with God. And yet it seemed as if the Israelites always when you read Israelites in the Old Testament, you need to read the unspoken Hebrew, which is loosely translated, bless their hearts. Always. Never got the point that it's the heart God is after, not the sacrifice. Our power is by proximity, not proficiency. You should write that down. Our power is by proximity, not proficiency. So sin is grabbing for power and, and focusing on me. Sin separates us from God's best. Paul teaches us this. We've, Romans 5.12, sin entered the entire human race when Adam sinned. Sin introduced death into the world. Death spread to everyone, so we are dead in our sins. And if that sounds hyper-religious to you, my friends, let it sink in before you reject it. Let it sink in while you think about all the things you've done in your life to try to make it happen. All the things you've done to try to compensate or the things you've done to medicate only to discover way too deep into it that you've been enslaved by the very thing you thought would set you free. That you are, we are powerless to overcome our own sin. We're a mess. So our Old Testament ancestors teach us a valuable lesson about these, uh, in, these, in these relentless sacrifices as they tried and tried and tried and tried to make it work, but were never able to dig themselves out of their graves. Sacrifice all manner of animals for me. The temple is a bloody mess, but so are your lives. No wonder we needed a savior. So the answer to all our crap is the sacrifice of Jesus. One sacrifice for all time. Paul says, since we've been justified by his blood, not by our works, but by his blood, not by our works, but by his mercy, in, in recovery, that is step one. Step one requires me to admit that I am powerless over my circumstances and that a power greater than me is necessary to restore me to sanity. That is right out of Scripture. In other words, I'm not God. I want you to turn and tell your neighbor right now, I'm not God. Turn and tell your neighbor right now. <laughs> For some of you, this is a brand new thought. And now I want you to turn back to that same neighbor and say to them, stop acting like it. <laughs> so I've been leading recovery groups on and off for about 20 years. 
I was late to the game. I'd already been sober for some years when I started working the steps, but when I found them, I discovered the unique genius of them. The 12 steps are just stuff pulled straight out of Scripture. They are the basic stuff of justification, sanctification. Basic stuff. Practical holiness. But let me start with my story or a little piece of it. I was called to God, by God to preach when I was 13 years old. I'm 56 now, so that was 43 years ago. In Georgia, that was a strange thing for a girl to claim. I struggled to hold on to the call. In fact, I didn't realize it at the time, but my pastor had no intention of recommending me for seminary. And so by the time I got to college, I'd watered it down. His suggestion to me was that I do Christian education. So that's what I went to college for at first. But there were only two problems with that. First, I am a wreck in a room full of children. Second, it's not my call. So I tried, but I failed, and I walked away from my call completely. I didn't realize that my call, I don't know, maybe not for everybody, but for me, my call was intricately connected to my faith, so when I stepped away from my call, my faith fell apart. So to, uh, I, I abandoned my calling, I played fast and loose with my relationship with God, I became an easy target for the enemy of my soul. It took almost, it actually took one drink for him to get me, because you can't swing a dead cat in my family without hitting an alcoholic. I mean, not that you would swing a dead cat, although in Georgia you might swing a dead cat, <laughs> especially a, 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 a relative, but let's stay with me, people, okay? I'm trying to tell you something here. So, so I just became an immediate, like I just was bad to drink. I don't, I, I, what I know is I was done. And that didn't last. It wasn't just a college thing. I get that. This was like way past college, into my marriage. Ten hard years of drinking. I just about got myself killed. Ended up in jail just once. The other times, lucky. Um, somewhere in there, I finished college, got married, began a career outside the church. In fact, I quit, quit church altogether for ten good years. But let me be clear on this. I did not stop going to church because the church somehow failed me or didn't meet my needs. I quit going because the enemy came, snatched me up, threw me into a prison that I was then able, unable to get out of on my own. It would take 12 years for me to finally, fully come home to Jesus, and it happened by mistake. A friend roped me into attending Bible study. Much like you this morning. You know, not exactly here by your for own free will, but I went because I didn't know how to say no, and there it was. In that Bible study, I heard God's call again, and it became really obvious. I was anointed for some kind of spiritual leadership, so much so that even while I was a mess, even while I was still drinking, they asked me to be a leader in their Bible study, but they told me I'd have to stop drinking if I came into leadership, and I said, I'll pray about it which is Christianese for when hell freezes over. <laughs> I had no intention of giving up drinking. But that invitation was the hook. Someone leading a Bible study had the guts to invite me to consider a different life. And I took the bait. And one day soon after, I realized the depth of the choice I'd been given. I could quit drinking and lead a Bible study or keep the status quo and allow my life to keep floating along with no purpose until all of a sudden I'm middle-aged and wondering what happened to my life. 
That choice wasn't ultimately a choice about leadership. It was ultimately a choice about lordship. You should write this question down. Who gets to be lord of your life? That's what I had to wrestle with. Who gets to be lord of my life? Because until you answer that question, nothing else matters. And when you answer that question, if you answer it with Jesus, everything gets redeemed. Everything. So I had my last drink more than two decades ago. And that choice to quit was one of the best choices of my life. Because I was bad to drink. Who gets to be Lord? That desire to be godlike, to be in control of my destiny, rebellious against the call to serve another God, that uh, desire, it manifests in a thousand ways. So now we have to get honest about the things that are stealing and killing and destroying us. What's stealing my life? What's killing my joy? What is messing with my relationships? Why do I always, always get offended and always still think it's them? What's destroying my hopes? What idol is vying for my attention? That is where recovery begins. It starts by evaluating your priorities. Tim Keller says, your idol will always break your heart. But they, we do this thing. We, we get in a hole and we say, eh, that, that thing that would make everything else okay is, and we fill in that blank with cheap and immediate solutions that have no power to fix the problem, to fix us. We are powerless over our circumstances. Remember that Leviticus begins with all these sacrifices for all these different ways of either worshiping God or, or for atoning for our sin. One of the good side effects for that for the Israelites, read silently, bless their hearts, um, I'm going to make you say that eventually, um, of constantly going back to the altar was they could never get very far from the admission of where their God, of who their God was. A decision, listen, a decision to submit to the Jewish sacrificial system was a decision to go back to the altar over and over and over again, to be reminded day after day after day of who God is. And by acknowledging who God is, acknowledging everything in their lives, in my life that isn't God, that has only been a diversion. I want you to write this down. A habit, uh, excuse me, an idol is anything that habitually diverts my attention from God. An idol is anything that habitually diverts my attention from God, which means my life is full of idols, which means yours is too. Because I can't be that much worse than you. What gets your mental time? What gets your money, your calendar? What does your phone say about what you value? Listen, this isn't about guilt. Seriously, it's not about guilt. There's no shame in Christ, and you should write that down. There's no shame in Christ. This is about growing up. What have you made more important than God? I want you to sit down and make that list. Evaluate your priorities. Think widely. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And then, whatever it is, renounce the idols. So evaluate your priorities and then renounce the idols. 
It's a great gift and relief to me to know that Jesus already knows about the things I'm slow to admit. And listen, Jesus is not as afraid of my sin as I am. Let that sink in. Jesus is not as afraid of your sin as you are, nor is he willing to leave you in it just to avoid the the discomfort of confronting you. If I'm willing to say, this is not good for me, and in fact it's leading me away from and not toward life, if I'm willing to confess that, that my life is out of control in some area, that, that I've made something a God that isn't a God, now, now Jesus has something he can work with. So go ahead. There's no shame in Christ. Admit it, honestly, unashamedly. Whatever your idol is, go ahead and say it. Not so God can hear you, but so you can hear you. Evaluate your priorities. Renounce your idols and then announce your need. And this is the best part to me. It's great news. We don't have to have the answers in order to renounce the idols. Isn't that great news? Like I don't have to come all prepared and ready to tell with a three-point plan of how I'm going to get out of this. I just have to confess it. So it makes confession such a glorious thing. You know, say, Jesus, I'm a mess. I'm just a mess. And I don't have any idea how to get out of this. I am powerless to control my circumstances. All I know is that some power greater than me is going to have to restore me to, to sanity. That's sort of the point and the first step in recovery. And friends, we are all in recovery. If you're living on this side of Genesis 3, you are in recovery. So will you turn to your neighbor now and say, you're in recovery. And then say to your friend, welcome to step one. I am powerless against my circumstances. I need a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Which means I have to surrender my life and my will to God. Step two. In the Old Testament system of sacrifices, blood was a big deal. They sprinkled blood on the altar because blood was a symbol of life. We'll be told in Leviticus 17 that not to drink blood because a pagan world was full of people drinking blood, believing the blood would give them life. And God would teach them, Leviticus 17, 11, if you want life, if you want atonement, if you want freedom, you have to come to me and get it from me. You can't get it for yourself, by yourself. The whole story of God is about the gift of life given by God to overcome and overwhelm the dead end of death. And I would argue that all of Leviticus is God teaching us how to live, really live, And whatever the story we're reading, Old Testament or New Testament, the story beneath it is the story of life over death. Of come that you might have life and have it to the full, Jesus said. I've come to make an end of the endless line of sacrifices that can never, ever, finally, fully answer that hunger you have right now, that empty place inside of you, that that you are desperate to find an answer for. Jesus says one sacrifice for all time answers that hunger. 
His body broken that we might be whole. His blood poured out that we might have life. The final word on sacrifice and forgiveness is Jesus. So when we come to the entrance of the tent of meeting, into the presence of God, you'll have that opportunity this week. We come there, we bring nothing with us. I am powerless over my addiction to myself. And I am in desperate need of a power greater than me to restore me to sanity. There's nothing to add to what's been given. Jesus will meet you right there at the altar. He'll meet you right there at the entrance of the tent. We lay our hand on that sacrifice just as they did. We identify ourselves with him, placing on him all we've done to separate ourselves from God. And we keep on coming to that place over and over and over until our lives are full of life and empty of death. How awesome is that gospel?